Pack your bags, it's time to visit Las Vegas, America's capital for fun and entertainment. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Hello everyone and welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi and we've got another great show for you today. You're going to meet the Babe Ruth of Impressionist Rich Little who appears nightly at the Tropicana. Also, appearing in the Mob Museum this Tuesday, ESPN investigative reporter Sean Assail. He's with us today and is going to discuss the life and murder of boxing icon Sonny Liston, all set in 1970 Las Vegas. Our Las Vegas Insider feature, of course, is this week with Scott Roeder discussing those wild rides on the top of the stratosphere that you hear about. And you'll also hear the story of the great artist Leroy Neiman when we visit the Casino Legends Hall of Fame with his curator, Steve Cutler. Well, when you think about Impressionists, there's a lot of good ones, but there's only one Rich Little. He's with us today. He's in Vegas a lot, which is really exciting. He plays at the Tropicana in a great show, Rich Little Live, which talks about his background. He's also got a great book out, which you should get. You should do them both. It's Little by Little, People I Have Known and Been. Well, Rich, first of all, thank you so much for being here. And the book and the show kind of correlate, right? It's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that I'm still alive and I'm still working. <laughs> That's good to know. <laughs> we, well, met. I had somebody last night at my show. You know, I'm performing at the uh, Tropicana five nights a week. And uh, a couple came up to me last night and said, oh, we loved your show. We wanted to come and see you because the wife thought you died. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I've died a few times on stage. But other than that, I'm, I'm alive and well and uh, things are going great, you know. Well, you know, it's it's great that it is. You know, and, and people, certainly my age, I grew up, I've, I've seen your shows since I was a little kid. I love it. And, you know, even my kids love watching your shows because I bought those, really? De- well, I bought those Dean Martin things, and they're like, this guy's great. Uh, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of young people, you know. I mean, the thing that's happened lately is the Internet, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing shows that I did that I don't have copies of. And um, you can almost get anything now. So I'm getting the Julie Andrews shows that I did most of those. And uh, I'm, I'm getting a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of shows I just didn't have in my collection. And now I'm getting them. So uh, if young people look at those roasts, uh, maybe out of curiosity, you know, they, they probably think, uh, well, you know, my folks know all these people. But I'm curious, why were they so great? And uh, let me see what they did. And so young people are now starting to watch the Dean Martin roast, and uh, the reaction has been terrific, really great. My daughter had a bunch of friends over, and they wanted to watch it, and they wanted to see Jimmy Stewart, because even though they don't know any of those other people on the dais, they certainly knew that from It's a Wonderful Life, and they're like, oh, my God, this guy's great. And, you know, uh, you had a lot of fun with him, and he seemed like he just enjoyed it. Yeah, oh, Jimmy? Yeah, Jimmy. Oh, Jimmy had a great sense of humor. He really did, and... uh, uh, one of the uh, best moments I ever had on the roast was when I was teaching Jimmy how to do himself. <laughs> <clears throat> and that's a great clip. And what's interesting about it is that we didn't to rehearse that. Really? Uh, when I had him stand up and, and had him do his Jimmy Stewart and said, that doesn't sound like you, hey, let me give you a few tips. <laughs> that was all um, unscripted and uh, ad-libbed. 
That's great stuff. Really good. You also did a great bit with Johnny Carson. I always remember where you started because your Johnny Carson is more than the voice. It's also the mannerisms. And he started doing the mannerisms uh, unintentionally while you were talking about it. He couldn't help it. That's right. That's right. Uh, after I showed the audience all his little picks, all the little things he does, he got up and started doing them and said, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm doing what Rich <laughs> Little did. And it was a great moment. It was terrific. You've had some great moments. Uh, what a great career. Let's let's go back where it started. It went back. You're a kid in Canada. You try to make it. Mel Torme takes you under his wing, and you go play the Judy Garland show. And I, I've right. seen that on the YouTube. You were doing stuff that nobody else was doing at the time. Well, that's, that's one of the reasons I went over so well was I was imitating Lloyd Bridges and Alfred Hitchcock and Fred McMurray and uh, Dennis Weaver. You know, a lot of people that have never been impersonated by anybody. And then, of course, when I did my James Mason at the end, when I did my James Mason from a star's born, uh, that's when Judy really lit up. And yeah. that's what really got me booked on the show, my James Mason impression, because she loved James Mason. You know, they did, did the movie together, and I guess they got along great. And when she heard my James Mason, she said, book him on the show. Oh, that's how I got on. And, w and what a great uh, kickoff, you know, you come. And I love the Ed Sullivan story. I'm going to ask you to share it again. Uh, he wasn't too good with the name, right? I mean, here you are, you're trying to make the name for yourself, but he can't get it right. Well, Ed, Ed was a very strange man. You know, I think he was the only man I ever met in my life who could count up to three and get two of the numbers wrong. You know, he, <laughs> uh, he, uh, he was one pa sandwich short of a picnic. He really was. He, he, he sort of, uh, you know, was kind of strange man he didn't have much of a sense of humor and when anybody imitated him on the show of course everybody looked at him for his reaction but i'm i'm always uh convinced that he was faking that he didn't really like people impersonating him because mm -hmm. they pointed out all the little ticks that he does and all the little things he does that that he didn't uh, like you know yeah and um Gosh, everybody, Will Jordan was probably the best. And then you had Jackie Mason doing him and John Biner and yours truly and George Kirby. Everybody did Ed Sullivan, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he called you, what, Buddy Rich? And then it switched to Ri Little Richard. I love that one. That's right. He said, and now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to bring to the stage a young comic. <laughs> who is coming to us from beautiful downtown Canada, making his very, very first appearance here on our show. A big welcome for Little Richard. <laughs> and that's the way I was introduced on the Ed Sullivan Show, as Little Richard. I'm telling you, what a moment that was. I, I was like a deer caught in the headlights. I just stumbled on stage and told disbelief. And... Um, of course, when I mean, the show was over, Ed said, well, they printed it wrong on the cards. It wasn't my fault. <laughs> but I want to have you back uh, next week and make up for it, uh, Buddy. <laughs> I said, no, no, it's Rich Little, not Buddy Rich, but Rich Little. I know who you are. <laughs> you know, it was very funny. Oh, that's great. Very but, funny. But being on his show was a big deal back then, wasn't it? I mean, it was a huge well, audience. everybody watched the Ed Sullivan show. I mean, that's the thing, you know, if if you went on the Ed Sullivan show, let's say twice and you did well, 
just about everybody in the country knew who you were because at that time there was nothing else to watch. And so, as you know, it was a great show to get on. Oh, God, you had your career made if you did well on that show, you know. Yeah, well, and, uh, you certainly had an incredible career. And I, I saw you, I remember back in the Circle Star Theater back in California, which doesn't exist anymore, and you, yeah. were, you were doing that. And then years later, I saw you, this was, you know, a few politicians away, and you just keep adding, you know. None of those old great stars, you know, we, we remember who they are, but you kept adding. Was that something, and at some point did you say, okay, I'm done. I'm not going to keep looking for some. And, and, and I guess the, the follow-up to that question are t- is today's stars, are they really difficult in the sense that they don't have those magnificent personalities of the old stars of the, you know, 50s, Well, 60s, we yeah. don't have the voices anymore, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these uh, movie stars of the 40s and 50s uh, were larger than life and easily identifiable. You know, Clark Gable, uh, Humphrey Bogart, John Wayne, you know. All the all these movie stars, James Cagney. I mean, everybody did them. But you know, today it's a little tougher because the voices aren't as distinct as they were back then. I mean, you've got people like George Clooney. I don't think anybody imitates him. I, I wouldn't even know how to. Yeah. And you got Matt Damon. How do you know how how does anybody do him? You know, right? Brad Pitt. I mean, Brad Pitt would mean nothing. I, I don't do Brad Pitt. To tell you the truth, I'd rather do Angelie Jolie, but uh, that's another matter. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you Boy, know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be lonely if I could do her, would I? <laughs> Angelina Jolie, I, no, I'd you wouldn't. i jump myself, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> well, you know, do you find that the whole thing of... You know, th- there were some great impersonators in the day, impressionists. Oh, yeah. You, know, you go back to uh, that great show, Copycats, that you were a part yeah. of and everybody was on. What do you think now when you see the stuff on SNL, which they'll kind of do some things, and they'll, you know, and each person will do one, two, or three, and it's not the same thing as what you guys did. They weren't really trying to get it down perfect. They were just trying to get a piece of it. Does that kind of bother well, I w- you? I was very lucky in that I did a lot of impressions of a lot of people. And I remember when I did Copycats, they had George Kirby on and Frank Gorshin on and Fred Trevelina and a lot of great impersonators. And I remember the, the writers uh, showed me the, uh, you know, one of the one of the offices and they had the names of all the people and the voices they did so that they could, you know, when they're putting the show right. together, they could look at the, at the board and see what voices they could use. And they said. My my list went on for over a hundred, and then Charlie Callis just had had um, um, one voice. I think it was um, uh, what's it what was the one Charlie Callis was uh, Georgie Jessel. Uh, Georgie Jessel. Georgie Jessel. Charlie Callis and had Georgie Jessel. You know? <laughs> Frank Gorshin had, of course, Burt Lancaster, Kurt Douglas, and James Cagney. He had a lot of voices too. But it was amazing when I saw it because my list went on for over a hundred, and um, uh, that, that really I could still I could still see that board today in my mind. You know, you'll hear more from Rich in just a moment. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. From the famous to the fascinating, in a climate as fun, fast, and flashy as Las Vegas. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. 
Forgotten Heroes, the independent film that Hollywood refused to distribute. They were asked to risk their lives in order to save their enemy. The producers of Forgotten Heroes are donating 25% of all sales to the American Veterans Disabled for Life Memorial Fund. We need someone to go in there and bring them out. From first-time director Jack Marino, the home run for America's Vietnam veteran. They are Forgotten Heroes. Buy the DVD now at ForgottenHeroesTheMovie.com. That's ForgottenHeroesTheMovie.com. I'm here with Logan Reed, my own personal business coach that does so much more than just business. Logan, do you find that people come to you thinking about business and ended up leaving where it's really about their entire life? That's actually a great question because what I find is that people often come to me and ask, am I a business coach, am I a career coach, am I a life coach? And I say, I don't care what you call me because when you change any part of your life, so if we're talking about your career or your relationship, it's going to change everything. So when we make changes in one part, it touches every part of our life. So how do we get involved? How do we get more information about about you and what you're doing? Sure. You can give me a call at 360-529-1848. Or email me at logan at loganreadcoaching.com. And you could also check out my website if you want to learn more about me at loganreadcoaching.com. Waste management has earth-friendly plans that fit the biggest corporations and recycling programs to help smaller companies get started. We're there for you every night and on the job with you every day. When you put waste management to work, you get an environmental partner and big ideas for every size business. From everyday collection to environmental protection, think green, think waste management. To learn more, visit WM.com. back chatting with the great rich little you're a good singer and you can do because doing songs is a, is a whole nother game isn't it well you know imitating singers is easier to do uh, that than do the talking impressions oh. because you've got the song going for you and if you sing a song that somebody made popular you like the song so you're kind of applauding the impression and and reacting because you like the song. So, you know, you do Tom Jones and you do It's Not Unusual, you know. Right. Um, people like that song. Or you do Neil Diamond and you sing, uh, you know, any one of his hits, uh, you know, Sweet Caroline. Yeah. I mean, people love that song. So, uh, you, you know, so it's great when you do singing impressions because um, you got a couple of things going for you there. Yeah, but when you sing, like, like when you do Sinatra, that's actually a tough one, right? Because he was such a great singer that, you know, you, you have a certain level you got to hold to. Well, Sinatra's a tough voice to do. He really is. I think mine goes in and out. I think, you know, because uh, I can hear it when I'm doing it. And some nights I think, oh, that's not quite right. Uh, you know, I've got to get a little lower or i got to, you know, i gotta, I got to improve this. And... Um, some nights I feel, wow, I nailed it. And other nights, you know, not yeah. so good. But <clears throat> as I said, that's one of the things about when you do impressions is it's a great plus is if you can hear it while you're doing it. Most people don't hear the way they talk, you know. Yeah. And I was always blessed with that, that I, 
I was my worst critic because I could evaluate it quickly when I was doing it, you know? You know, and, and that's something I want to ask you about because I think it's really interesting. You know, it's like asking Babe Ruth, well, how did you train for that? You know, how it, – it's not just a gift that you're – you know, you, like I think one of the things you say in your show is uh, you, maybe your mother was uh, conceived by a Xerox machine or something or conceived <laughs> – I love that. But how do you – do? I mean, there's a lot of work in this, right? A lot of practice and over and over. Oh, that kind yeah, of- yeah, yeah. I, I feel some voices uh, I do are better than others, and, um, you know, I, I some nights – Ah, some nights I, I get into my Johnny Carson and, uh, you know, it goes over so well uh, that after the show is over, I I find myself going to the dressing room and writing out an alimony check. <laughs> that's great. Uh, that's still my favorite one. Of, of all the people you do, I think Carson is my favorite. One more thing. I want to talk about the politicians because you've always done the presidents throughout the years, and I've find it really interesting. Was Reagan your favorite to do? And was- oh, Reagan was absolutely my favorite. I absolutely adored that man. He just loved my impression. Uh, I mean, I've never had anybody react to me uh, as well as he did. He would just scream with laughter. Tears would roll down his face. And one time he said to me, he said, you know, Rich, you do me better than I do. <laughs> I said, what? He said, yes. As a matter of fact, when I step down as president, I think that you should become president and just talk in my voice. (laughs) And I said, well, thank you, Mr. President, but I can't be president for one thing because I'm a Canadian. (laughs) And he said, I know that, and and I can fix that. (laughs) Oh, that's great. That's really great. Now, not everybody took it that way, right? Didn't you say Nixon was a little funny about it, right? Well, I did Nixon in front of Nixon years ago down in San Clemente. And he had this party down there, this garden party. Everybody in Hollywood was uh, was there. It was interesting. At that time, most of Hollywood was, was conservative, you know. Not today. It's the opposite. Right. They're all liberals. But anyway, I got to this party in San Clemente. I was only in my 20s. I'd only been performing for a couple of years. And uh, my God. Gosh, the people were there. I mean, my act was there. I mean, George Burns, Jack Benny, uh, John Wayne, you know, that just went on and on. And um, I ended up, because uh, Debbie Reynolds grabbed me and threw me at the back of the president and said, do them. And Nixon turned around and thought, what the hell's going on? Do them? Is he going to shoot me? And then he realized that I was... Uh, Want to do something, and I started into my Nixon in front of Nixon, and I was doing, I was doing my Richard Nixon. I, I just want to say that this is an excellent party, and I hope, you know, I hope it's not taped. <laughs> <laughs> and as I'm doing all these corny lines, he looked at me like he didn't know who I was doing. <laughs> he didn't realize I was imitating him, and he actually turned to Pat during my. My little bit that I did, turned to his wife, Pat, and said, why is this young man speaking in this strange voice? <laughs> and it was so funny because he didn't know I was doing him. And then I looked out and everybody, you know, John Wayne and Glenn Campbell and Jack Benny, they were all gagging themselves because they didn't want to laugh in front of the president. <laughs> and uh, I remember when it was over, George Burns said to me, you know, I was so embarrassed. I ate a flower. <laughs> and John Wayne said, 
somebody get a rope, you know. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it didn't go over at all. Jeez, yeah. I got no reaction from Nixon at all. Meanwhile, was, you know, it was, a, it was an embarrassing moment, but it was funny. Well, now, meanwhile, his opponent in 68, when he first won the presidency, Hubert Humphrey. Humphrey, I understand, loved your impression of him. That he, you little him. Hubert Humphrey, and I'm pleased as punch to be here today. Uh, little Hubert Humphrey was a wonderful man. <laughs> and he used to come and see me at the Sands Hotel years ago. This is a true story. It's in my book, as a matter of fact. He came to see me one night at the Sands, and he came backstage and, just had, and he said to me, you know, I think you knew I was in the audience, and so you went easy on me. <laughs> I said, no, I didn't, sir. Oh, I think you changed a few things. I'm going to come back and see you again uh, another night and see what you really do with me. And I said, no, I, I didn't change anything. And you know that he came back two nights later, in disguise, because he didn't want anybody to know he was there. That's great. Wore this hat and this big scarf and these very dark glasses, and the maitre d' phoned me and said, Hubert Humphrey's in here. He snuck in, and um, of course I did him, and uh, I didn't change anything. So, <laughs> But he, he, was, he was a big fan of mine. I, I loved that man. You know? Yeah, no, I, 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 he and his wife, I know we're big fans. I heard them talk about you on yeah, I, I, that still sticks with me. What well, about one, one one time on the Merv Griffin show? I was um, on stage with Merv. It was done here in Vegas, and he had Hubert Humphrey and his wife Muriel and myself. And I did the impression right in front of them. And um, when I finished, Hubert Humphrey's wife took my arm and said, um, "I like this one better than that one." And she walked off stage <laughs> with me, leaving, leaving <laughs> Hubert standing there. She said, this one does you better, and he's better looking. So she walked <laughs> off with me. What about today's politicians? Do you do Obama or, you know, one of the two? I do uh... Obama, but um, not for long. Yeah. <laughs> and and, um, and uh, Donald Trump is, is difficult to do. We're going to build a wall. We're going to build a wall around the White House and keep Hillary out. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's tough to do. Uh, I think it'll get better, as, as I said see him more and more you know he was standing on the deck of the titanic yesterday you know looking for a lifeboat but do you notice that in these debates there's no humor yeah no i wonder why they don't write the uh, hillary and, and donald some one-liners um you remember when reagan was taking on walter mondale and he said we won't make age an issue in this campaign and i won't point out that my opponent is young and inexperienced Right. Now, that was a great moment, but that line was written for him. Right. You know? You wonder why and they I, don't. I thought I, I, if I was advising Donald Trump, I'd have him, I would have him come out last night wearing boxing gloves, you know? Yeah. And then throw, the, them, throw them away. Or, or I, would like to, I would like to read a list of Hillary's accomplishments and hold up a little piece of paper <laughs> the size of a postage stamp. I mean, things like that would be funny. You know, none of them do that. They they don't really have any humor in it because I guess they want to be presidential. I don't know, but there, there's no humor. It didn't know? get in the way of Reagan, like you said. I mean, people liked it. It just made it more endearing to folks. So I agree with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we yeah, we need some people to give them some some lines to use um, because if you make people laugh a little bit, it makes you look human, and uh, they love that. 
They absolutely adore that. So, you know, that's unfortunate. But, uh, well, who am I? No one would listen to me. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I have a few ideas. But um, <laughs> I don't think they're going to listen to me. But Well, the they heck. should. You know, Rich Little, you're one funny person. i got to tell you, you have brought joy and happiness to my family through the years. We love it. Everybody, you got a shot to see Rich Little. He well, plays... I'm very happy with this book I just put out. Yeah, let's it's... talk a little about that. Tell, well, can you tell us a little about book, what's in the book specifically? Well, the book is called, uh, uh, you know, People I've Known and Been, Little by Little. And it's really funny stories um, of all the people I've worked with over the years. And um, also I sketch and I do portraits, and I have 23 of my sketches in the book, too. And I talk about uh, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, Julie Andrews, you know, I mean, Jackie Gleason, all, all the greats. And um, I was very privileged to work with a lot of these people. And, uh, and so the book is not really a bio. It's more of uh, just funny things that have happened in my career is what it is. Yeah, I think it's really enjoyable, and it's a, it's bringing back a portion of entertainment that you're just not going to see anymore. It doesn't work that way with all the various channels that are all over the place, and people can watch what they want to watch all the time. These were stars that were just huge everywhere they went. Yeah, but of course, a lot of young people don't know who they are. You know, that's the problem. Well, um, I had a kid in my show two weeks ago, and he sat in the front row. He's about 15 years old. And he laughed through the whole show. He was really enjoying it. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think he knows anybody I'm doing. He couldn't at the age 15. And then when the show was over, he says to me, Mr. Little, I really enjoyed your show. Gosh, you are funny. I said, well, thank you very much. That's a surprise. He said, however, I'm a little confused, though. I said, about what? He said, well, I was just wondering why you kept changing your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, that's unbelievable. It's hilarious. <laughs> you know what I think they're going to do, Rich? They, they read your book. They see your show. Then you go to YouTube and look at like a Honeymooners, for example. You talk about Jackie Gleason. Or, you know, you go w listen to Jack Benny do one of his great bits with Mel Blanc or something. I think they're going to yeah. really appreciate it, quite frankly. Well, good for you. But, you know, a lot, a lot of young people have no idea who these people are. But, um, you know, it, it. my show is kind of a trip down memory lane because I – I bring back all these wonderful people, and we don't have these kind of people anymore. They do not exist. They're, the comedians today, mm, I don't know. I yeah. can't name too many great ones. Can you? No, not really. I mean, you, know, you think back to the 70s and so forth, and you know, there's a lot of them, but they're not the big stars they were back then. No, no. What a shame, huh? It really and is. And, of course, the roasts they do today are pretty crude. And, um, and, you know, there are a lot of people you don't know who they are. and uh, You know, they're pretty blue. And um, uh, one thing about those Dean Martin roasts is sometimes they were a little racial. I, I got to admit that. But generally speaking, um, there was nothing in there that was offensive, really. You know. Yeah, right. Uh, Don, Don Rickles came close. But, um, <laughs> you know, they're, 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 they're pretty good shows as far as content is concerned, you know. Uh, they were fantastic. I still like watched them. You know, this many Don, years later. Don, Don, Don Records, <laughs> Rich, <laughs> I say to you in all humility, from the bottom of my heart, you're a pain in the ass. <laughs> Why don't you put your teeth in backwards and bite yourself to death? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever see him down there? Because I know he plays once in a while there. 
Well, he's playing the Orleans, I see, uh, soon. Oh. I've seen him there last year. And God bless him at his age to get out there. He can't even get out there. You know, he can't walk anymore. But he's still performing in his 90s. And that's something else, I'll tell you. Yeah, that is impressive. Funny. And he's still funny. Well, you're he's not in your 90s. He's but... still funny. <laughs> no, you're not in your 90s, but you are hilarious. I think it's a great show. Everybody should go to the Tropicana. Get a hold of the book, too, because if you go to the book first, it'll help you enjoy yeah. the show even more. And I understand well, you're I using a lot of... I don't know whether I'll be performing in my 90s or not. I think you'll have to come out to the home <laughs> to see me, and I'll perform when I'm 90. But, um, um, but you know, there's... It, of that generation of those people, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra, George Burns, Jack Benny, I mean, there's only one or two people left, you know? Yeah. And Rickles, a... is, Rickles is one of them, for sure. You know, in your show, I understand you use uh, some video, right, to kind of bring back some of it as part of the show? Well, yeah. What I do is I show a lot of my sketches before I imitate somebody, so you, you see my sketch of them. And then what I do is um, I do the impression like George Burns, and then I show on the screen me with George Burns. Then I do John Wayne, and I show me with John Wayne. So that's what the show is. It's, it's um, me doing impressions and showing me with them, and then with the sketches. And um, it's a show that uh, seems to work. Everybody seems to like it, so I'm, I'm very happy about that. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I saw your Jimmy Stewart show. I love that, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. That's at the Tropicana, and let's get the book, too. It's little by little, people I have known and been. Rich, thanks get so much. Get it on Amazon.com. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Or in the bookstore. Yeah. I don't know where, where it is in the bookstore, but I'm going to go to all the bookstores and uh, sneak in copies and put them on the shelves. What do you think? I think it's a good idea, and if it's not there, we'll ask for it, so... <laughs> Rich, thanks so much. I really appreciate oh, talking. I appreciate talking to somebody who knows what I'm doing. You know, <laughs> sometimes I talk to uh, uh, somebody uh, from a radio station who's in their 20s, and I'm thinking to myself, "Oh, brother, this is going to be tough." <laughs> but I appreciate the fact that you uh, you know most of these people, and uh, and you follow my career, so I'm very flattered. Thanks, Rich. When we return, you'll learn the true story of Sonny Liston and his murder in 1970 Las Vegas with ESPN's Sean Assail. This is Vegas Never Sleeps. World-class hotels, dining, gaming, special events, and more. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Are you looking to save money on your prescription medications? Are your prescription costs too high? Are you paying out of pocket for your meds? Or is your copay too high? Well, if you answered yes to any of these questions, you've got to check out the RX Cut free prescription discount card. And getting your free discount card is easy. All you do is go to the website rxcutdiscounts.com. The free RX Cut prescription discount card allows you to get significant discounts on either brand name or generic prescription medications, and it also works on meds with high copays. There are no fees, no forms, no personal information needed, and the cards are active immediately. Discount cards are also good for the entire family, and they never expire. Again, to get your free discount cards, visit rxcutdiscounts.com. You may get the free discount card either by U.S. mail, email, text, or simply print out the discount card online. It's just that easy. 
Dear Daddy. Dear Mom. I love you. I miss you. Every year, Snowball Express honors the children of fallen soldiers. Hi, everybody. I'm Tony Orlando. Join me in proudly supporting Snowball Express, a nonprofit that creates opportunities to help heal the children of our fallen heroes. We can never repay the sacrifice our soldiers have made, but we can honor them by giving back to their children. Donate now at snowballexpress.org. Well, if you're familiar with the great Muhammad Ali's career, I'm sure you've heard the name Sonny Liston. And if you were around at that time, Sonny Liston was a really famous guy and a real depressing story. Died a tragic death. Don't know quite what happened until now. There's a great book out called The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas Heroin and Heavyweights by our guest, uh, Sean Asale. And Sean is a fantastic writer. If you've read him, he's on the ESPN, the magazine. He's been with them since they started. He's also part of that great uh, show, Outside the Lines, which you can see on ESPN as well. And, of course, this show's about Las Vegas, but this couldn't be more Las Vegas. And Sean... Sonny Liston, I'm so glad you wrote about it. This is really a depressing figure in history and a guy that has been uh, really had a question mark around his name uh, going back to the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, you know, for people who love boxing, um, you know, Sonny Liston was an electric fighter. He had the, the, the biggest left jab in the sport. He was just a, a monstrous fighter. And, um, you know, his two fights with Floyd Patterson, both, both won in the first rounds, and his two fights with Muhammad Ali, both lost under suspicious circumstances, made him a lightning rod for boxing. He was also seen as somebody who was a tool of the mob, uh, first in St. Louis and in Philadelphia in the 50s and 60s. Um, you know, St. Louis was such a lightning rod that um, when he first fought Patterson, JFK, John F. Kennedy, suggested that Patterson find somebody of, quote-unquote, higher moral character. <laughs> so it's, it's Sonny at his height, was a, a worldwide icon. But when we meet him in the book in 1970, which we know he doesn't, is the last year of his life, um, we see a much different Sonny, one who's been hounded out of boxing, is, is now fighting for, for chump change, uh, and is dealing drugs, quite frankly, out of the International Hotel, working for a, a local gang, and, um, you know, in his spare time, trying to break into action movies and, and dating a junky cocktail waitress on the side. So we meet Sonny uh, at the same time we meet Las Vegas in 1970, and those two stories very much in the book work in parallel, Steve. Getting to Liston's whole career, when he lost to Ali and so forth, it was sort of the same thing as when George Foreman lost to Ali. Obviously, though, they went in totally different directions. George Foreman ended up getting the title back and is kind of a national hero now, where this poor guy's career just sank as far as it could. And, and, and yet, before he fought that fight, weren't they afraid that he could kill somebody in the ring? He was so good. Oh, I mean, there was. Look, I mean, there, in his Golden Glove days, um, one of his one of his coaches said he could floor a water buffalo. I mean, Sonny was a, Sonny was menacing in in no small part um, because of his left jab, but also because he had eyes with dead reckoning in them. As, as I write in the book, he was a menacing slab of manhood, immutable, impossible, impervious. So, you know, Sonny Liston was the most 
feared, and this is, this is no joke, he was the most feared African-American in America in his time. Um, to say he was like Foreman, though, misses, I think, one, forgive me, one central fact. George Foreman was never seen as a tool of organized crime. There were never hearings where George Foreman was sworn in and made to say under oath that he had renounced his mafia backers. That was all stuff that had made Sonny both a, 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 a incredible figure in the ring, but also in, in you know, the headlines. No, I agree with you. I, all I meant was that Foreman was kind of a sullen guy at the time, and they thought he was, you know, kind of a miserable guy. And again, it's tough to go ahead and fight Ali. There's all that whole PR thing. But there's so much more to list in here, like you say, with these mob connections. But let's also talk about Las Vegas, which I think, yeah. you know, you're, you're signing the book at the Mob Museum. It's a whole other world now. The 1970s, it isn't quite the same place that it is today. Well, what really fascinated me, and I'll, and I'll tell you how I reported that book. Somebody might say, well, look, you're a, a native New Yorker. You work for ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut. What business do you have writing about Las Vegas in 1970? Well, I'll tell you, Steve, libraries are still great places. And the, UN, uh, the UNLV Library sent the Las Vegas Sun from 1970, as well as the Review Journal, to New York, to the New York Public Library for me. My wife went there every day for for six weeks, copied every single word out of every single newspaper that was relevant to what we were doing at night. She'd come home, we'd talk as if we were living in Las Vegas in 1970. We knew the politicians, we knew the, the crooks, we knew the names of the cops. We really felt like we were living in that time. And what that allows me to do is recreate Las Vegas in that era when Howard Hughes was running his empire from the Pentas of the Desert Inn and Elvis was playing you know, the, the showroom at the International. Obviously, at that point, too, the mob still had their fingers in things. You know, it's not like today where it's all big corporations and so forth. And, and that's what just makes this story so fascinating. One of The reviews of this book have been great. And one of them that I really like was they compared it to, like, The Wire and Chinatown. And it reads like that. And that's what's fascinating about it. So let's bring people back to the 70s. So we talk Las Vegas, a different place. Liston's involved there, right? I mean, this is where he kind of ended up in his career. How did he get on the strip and so forth, and what was he doing? You know, what's, what's, what's really magical, I think, about, about what we found was that lot, there was a Las Vegas, and I write about this extensively, um, it was two worlds, right? It was the luminous world of the strip. But I spend a lot of time in the book talking about the west side of Las Vegas, which, you know, in its day was, was this, this wonderful world created out of the, the tragic fact that African Americans weren't allowed on the strip. Um, there was, as I quote, one of the first African-American police officers saying there was an uh, epithet that cops would write whenever they arrested an African-American. and It was called NOS, which stood for, you know, epithet on the strip. And Sonny bridged the white and black worlds of Las Vegas like nobody I'd come across. He lived in Paradise Palms, which, as you, you know, everybody well knows, is that neighborhood initially created for casino executives and, and their stars. Um, winding streets, the illusion of suburbia in the 24-hour city. But at night, Sonny would go to the west side, which, when we meet him and we meet the city in 1970, is a, is a devastated place. There are race riots. 
Um, and, and we see Sonny very much bridging those two worlds. He's able to be at the International, and people are asking him for autographs, and he's very much a star in the manner of, of um, Joe Lewis. But at night, we see a different Sonny, and it's a Sonny that harkens back to his, his early criminal days in St. Louis. It's just a fascinating juxtaposition, Steve. Because people only remember back uh, the post-Ali days and stuff, they think of Liston just basically as a thug. Well, he certainly was involved in that world, but he was much more than that. Like you say, he was actually popular on the strip with some of the big players. Uh, he had celebrity and so forth, so he kind of played both sides of the strip. And I think what's incredible in this is this story, if it isn't interesting enough, you've got President Nixon involved in the FBI and so forth. What was all that about? I just, every time this story took another turn on me, I just got so excited because I realized, you know, Sonny Liston is holding this book together. He's the central character. But there's so many things that are circling around him. Yes, Richard Nixon, his presidency in, in tatters, Vietnam protests breaking out all over the country. What does he do to, 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 to create a win for himself somewhere? Creates his war on drugs. He's now going to become America's law and order president. He's fighting the drug scourge. He's authorizing undercover investigations left and right. And who gets caught up in one of those undercover drug investigations? You get it. Sonny Liston. It's incredible how many places Sonny runs through this story. You get to, you get to see in Hollywood the making of some of the, uh, the biggest black exploitation movies. Why? Yes, again, Sonny Liston is now in Hollywood trying to break into the acting world. Um, you know, you, you, you read about all the, the politics of the day, the Las Vegas politics of the day. One of the big stories is, uh, I think, the, a long-forgotten sheriff's race between Ralph Lamb and, and um, a, a, a local lieutenant named John Sleeper, yet crazily that looms large in my story. Uh, you see band leaders, you see um, you know, street figures, you see big-time casino executives. They're all, I try to draw them all vividly for you. Yeah, and it reads like a wild novel, but in reality, it, it really happened. You know? and people I promise have to you, Steve, I, 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 every word of it is true. Every word of it is true. And where, where, I, where I quote people's recollections, you'll You'll see in the book, I don't want to give too much of it away, but you'll see a quite, uh, a quite vivid scene of Sonny doing drugs. It's writ exactly from the interview notes of the person who did it with Sonny. So for those who think, oh, this, this seems all made up, I promise you not a word of it is. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Sean Sale, and then we'll visit with our Las Vegas insider, Scott Robin, and visit the Casino Legends Hall of Fame. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Visit us at VegasNeverSleeps.com. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You'd never suspect that you could find natural beauty as part of a working landfill. You can. Today, waste management landfills provide more than 17,000 acres of protected land for wildlife habitats. Working closely with communities and the Wildlife Habitat Council, we can ensure there will be protected space for native animal and plant life to thrive. From everyday collection to environmental protection, think green, think waste management. 
I'm here with Logan Reed, my own personal business coach. You know, a lot of people may think this is all a bunch of psychobabble and that kind of thing. But in reality, this is stuff that on the surface may seem like we're going to explore our background. But actually, we're just getting really in touch with ourselves to see how we can be more successful. Is that what you try to do with people? It is. So I'm not so interested in what's happened in the past. What I'm looking for is where people are now, where they want to be. And coaching always takes place in the gap. So what are the things, where are the places where they're getting stopped that's in that gap? And then when we move through those, they end up having what they want, whatever their goal is for themselves. Okay, we're all excited about it now. So how do we get involved? How do we get more information about about you and what you're doing? Sure, you can give me a call at 360-529-1848 or email me at logan at loganreadcoaching.com. And you could also check out my website if you want to learn more about me at loganreadcoaching.com. listening to ESPN investigative reporter Sean Asale discussing the life and death of boxer Sonny Liston. It's interesting what you talk about with Muhammad Ali. Now, of course, in that time, Ali had his own struggles with the change of the name from Cassius Clay, and then, of course, the problem with the draft board and all that. Everybody knows about that. But there's some thought that Liston may have been silenced because uh, he was uh, complaining a little too loudly when Ali was going back for the big matchup with Joe Frazier, which was his return to the scene. Yeah, I mean, what what I tried to do in this book, and it's what you do, even though every word of this book is is true and, and noted. Um, uh, you know, in all good fiction, the, the reader is always one step ahead of the main character, right? So the reader knows what the character doesn't. It's a it's a technique to keep keep to build the tension. Um, in this case, you see Sonny getting into all these different piles of trouble. Right, you know, he's he doesn't realize it, but he's under investigation and the undercover drug sting by the feds. He doesn't realize it, um, but there's and I don't want to give away too much, but right. at some point, yes, there's a contract put out on his life. Um, you don't want to, he doesn't realize it, but there's all these pockets of trouble that he's in. Well, one of those pockets of trouble is that um, Ali is about to fight Joe Frazier for the biggest person boxing history at Madison Square Garden, and yet here comes Sonny making noise that he was owed money from uh, from losing to Ali five years earlier. And as I, as I write in the book, and, and this is speculative, but I do make, it, I think, a convincing argument. Um, at that point in, in, in um, Ali's career and Frazier's career in, in boxing, there were a lot of people who didn't want Sonny to make that noise and were, were quite happy when he turned up dead. That's probably the one thing when you look at Ali's career – that's always the one part that was sort of an annoyance because it was always that question whether Sonny took a dive or not. And to this day, I don't think it's ever really been uh, proved one way or the other. No, it hasn't been proved one way or the other. Um, you know, there are people who have treated that, that fight like the Zabruder film, looked at every frame of it. Right. Um, you know, I, I have a hard time believing that that, that fight was legit. Um, the way Sonny's the way Sonny went down, he did try to get up. There was all sorts of confusion about whether the ref let the fight go, should have let the fight go on or not. Um, but there was just the weight of uh, the weight of um, potential conspiracies lands, I think, to a fix. Hey, Sean, finally, I think the important part of this, and bottom line is though, too. 
it's really new information, right? I mean, this is the first from what I've seen. Nobody's talked about it. There's been speculation. You've actually talked to people that nobody had talked to before. And it's some of the great work, like what you see on the show Outside the Lines, uh, it had to be exciting for you to kind of, I think you put this case to rest pretty much. You know, and I, I really thank you for saying that because there have been some great books done on Sonny. I think um, people who are boxing fans may have read Nick Tosh's The Devil and Sonny Liston. Um, you know, David Remnick has wrote the wonderful Ali book, King of, King of the World. There, there have been just great things done on this topic. And yet, Steve, you know, I found myself in Las Vegas meeting people that I, nobody had ever spoken to. And at every turn, I'm like, holy cow, I'm finding out stuff that nobody knows. Holy cow. And the number of holy cows got to a point where I became then convinced I really was on to something. Um, I, I, do th- I, I have no problem saying that there's plenty in this book that nobody's ever seen before, um, including some sweet moments with Sonny that will make you feel differently about him. So, yeah, there's, this, was a, this was a lot of years of work, and I'm really, really proud of how much is new in this book. In our society, people get demonized and stuff. They make this guy sound awful. Well, it's not that, it's not that he was, didn't have that in him. He certainly did. But you bring him around another side where he, he comes across as a real man as opposed to just this ridiculous figure. Was that one of the things you wanted to do, too, was try to humanize him a little bit? You know, I didn't set out with a single goal like that, but it's like any, any of the work that I do. You let the facts take you where they take you. And the, the, weight, the weight of my reporting pointed towards this picture of this man. And I wasn't trying to necessarily humanize him, but I was trying to, you know, get, get to some greater essence, right? To, to right. try to get beyond these caricatures, to try to understand why somebody would do the things that they did. And by the end of this book, I think you'll find that Sonny Liston was a, um, I won't say a sympathetic character, but an understandable one. I think that you'll understand when you see him doing things why he's doing those things. You may not like it, by the way, um, you know, but in some respects, Sonny Liston emerges as an antihero. But still, he's a, a remarkable figure that I think ties together a remarkable story. The uh, reviews have been great, and I go back to that one review again. When they compare it to The Wire, I think The Wire is one of the great shows of all time on there and it is a lot like that where it's this reality going in front of you and, and while you're watching it you feel it's real and, and of course the, it is it's a wonderful book it's the murder of Sonny Liston Las Vegas heroin and heavyweights Sean uh, we can get that everywhere I assume right it's just just released oh absolutely it's on uh, it's on Amazon Barnes and Noble we'll have it at the Mob Museum on Tuesday help me with the date Steve it's October 25th right yep you got it <laughs> and we'll have it there and um, you know if you're interested interested in my work, you can also get it at my website, seanassale.com, which has my other books on it. Yeah, absolutely. It is well worth a visit to your website. I'm glad you brought that up. And we'll keep watching you on ESPN and reading you on ESPN the magazine. Thanks so much, Sean. Really appreciated it. Steve, I look forward to seeing you. Taking a look at the entertainment calendar in November, here's a few acts you might like to catch. They include the Little River Band. Friday night. 
They're playing at the Golden Nugget Friday, November 18th. And then on Saturday, it's all comedy, as on Saturday the 19th, Jay Leno visits the Mirage, while at the Smith Center, an evening with Bob Newhart. Time now for our Las Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, who today discusses the wild adventures on the top of the Stratosphere Hotel. In the specific area of the rides on the Stratosphere, you've got to be kidding me. Because I can overcome my fear for a moment, but you're on the tallest freestanding structure west of the Mississippi, I think, and there are people jumping off voluntarily going on this i i don't understand it and you're riding a roller coaster on top of this thing i i get nauseated looking at pictures of people doing this so the idea of me actually doing it i know it's another like self-created limitation but those rides on top of the stratosphere just as an insider thing are the money maker for that casino they print money for for that casino wildly popular and there is a line constantly. People pay just to ride up in the elevator to the to the top of this tower. And if you you want an insider tip, tell them you're going to the lounge. If you're if you're in line to get a ticket to ride up, tell them you're going to the lounge. You're going to the happy hour. You can save the paying for the ticket to go to the top of the stratosphere. Scott Robin will be back with us again next week. In the meantime, you can read what's going on in town at VitalVegas.com. Is there something you've always wanted to know about Las Vegas? Drop us a line at info at VegasNeverSleeps.com. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Forgotten Heroes, the independent film that Hollywood refused to distribute. They were asked to risk their lives in order to save their enemy. The producers of Forgotten Heroes are donating 25% of all sales to the American Veterans Disabled for Life Memorial Fund. We need someone to go in there and bring them out. From first-time director Jack Marino, the home run for America's Vietnam veteran. They are Forgotten Heroes. Buy the DVD now at ForgottenHeroesTheMovie.com. That's ForgottenHeroesTheMovie.com. This year, more than 172,000 people will be told they have lung cancer. Lung cancer. 60% will wonder why, why, as they never smoked or quit smoking years ago. Lung cancer will kill 163,000 people this year. More people than breast, prostate, colon, liver, and kidney cancers combined, making it by far America's number one cancer killer. Cancer killer. But there is hope. New treatments are available and more are on the way. The Lung Cancer Alliance is working to focus attention and research on lung cancer to develop early detection tools and more treatment options. Lung Cancer Alliance is leading the charge as the only organization solely dedicated to providing support, resources, and a voice for people touched by lung cancer and those at risk for the disease. Join us in the fight against lung cancer. The time has come. No more excuses. No more lung cancer. To learn more, visit lungcanceralliance.org or call 1-800-298-2436. As you may already know, trees do more than beautify our world. 
They help clean the air of carbon dioxide, a major greenhouse gas. As North America's largest recycler, last year alone, waste management recycled enough paper to save over 41 million trees. How's that for thinking green? From everyday collection to environmental protection, think green, think waste management. Time now for another trip back to the vintage Vegas days with Steve Cutler of the Casino Legends Hall of Fame. Leroy Neiman is somebody now we don't necessarily associate him with just with Las Vegas. He's done some incredible art. I mean, especially sports fans know him for every Super Bowl and so forth. What was his influence of that? And then I look over your collection here and I see a bunch of Leroy Neiman stuff. Oh, my gosh. Leroy Neiman. Uh what a remarkable, remarkable man. First of all, uh, I truly considered him a friend of mine. Uh, he was gracious enough, actually, to design all of the awards that uh, were placed in the Hall of Fame for everybody that was inducted, and they all have his signature on them, which is kind of cool. But Leroy has done so much artwork uh, for the city of Las Vegas, uh, everything from boxing events to... Uh, pictures of different casinos, gaming scenes, showgirls. He loved Las Vegas. He was a huge, huge fan of Las Vegas, uh, huge supporter. And unfortunately, we lost him a couple years ago. But what a great man. And uh, uh, like the rest of the world, I truly miss him. We will be back again with Steve Cutler next week. Thanks for joining us today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas never sleeps. We'll see you next week for more excitement and energy from the desert. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggie.